Well, good morning. My name is Tim Deal. If you're new with us, I'm one of the pastors here. And that was a clip from the 2013 film Ender's Game, based on the uh, novel by Orson Scott Card. And there's a lot of layers to this film, well, to the novel particularly, but uh, subsequently to the film, uh, that we're not, we won't get into. But in this scene, we see the protagonist, Ender Wiggins. He's uh, a brilliant, young, aspiring uh, fighter captain in this uh, elite kind of group of children who are being developed to be the future of the Earth's defense against a hostile alien force. If you haven't figured out yet, it's sci-fi. Um, but basically, in this scene, we see Wiggins, who again is, is kind of the, the leader in this context, in a battle scenario, firing out orders, one after another after another. And some of them are kind of questionable, right? Like, really, we should do that? But in the heat of the moment, what they have to do is not, there's no time to question. They just have to obey and trust that he knows what he's talking about. Well, we're continuing a series that we've been in for a couple of weeks now. Actually, we're wrapping it up this week that we've, we're calling The Way of Love, where we're looking at one of the letters that we find in the New Testament, 1 John written by one of the closest friends, disciples of Jesus Christ, who also authored one of the Gospels, the Gospel of John. And this letter was written to churches, um, quite different culturally, but um, at their core, not that different from this group here. A group of people together uh, coming to learn what it means to love God, love others around the way of Jesus. And as I've said every week, uh, we're going to look at a chunk of this uh, scripture this morning. There's a lot we're not going to get to. It's the hard thing about uh, kind of going through a text like this. And so there's a bunch of different angles we encourage you to come at this. There's a lot of things we won't address here. So if, if you have a Bible, uh, we just encourage you to read along at home. Uh, if you don't have one, we have Bible sitting at the back tables out in the foyer. Uh, feel free to get up and grab one now or before you leave this morning. Uh, it's our gift to you. And just kind of follow along. Um, as we're going, well, this will be the last week, but kind of read through it on your own. We're also studying First John in our community groups. Tim mentioned that uh, community groups meet today. Just really want to encourage you, if you're not a part of a community group, this is a great opportunity for you to get involved, get plugged in, make some relationships, build some friendships, and explore for yourself some of what the scripture is saying and how that might apply to your life. Uh, so there's a number of different angles you can come at this. This morning, we're going to look at 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 13, and focus on a particular theme that we find there. So you can read along with me. It'll be up here on the screen, beginning in verse 1. John writes, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony... But God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God, which he has given us about his Son. 
Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts his testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be, I'm sorry, whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So there's a lot again in this, and we're not going to be able to cover it all. But the one theme that John goes to in this chapter that I want to kind of land on this morning, that I think is the theme that we've seen even prior to this in John's gospel, is this idea of obedience. That those who have been, as John says, born of God, who are being transformed by God, are obedient to Christ. That it's one of the key identifiers of a follower of Christ, this idea of obedience. Now, we in, in our culture kind of have this weird relationship with obedience. We don't like it very much. This idea that we would be kind of subservient to someone else, it, it's not part of our cultural narrative. In fact, disobedience is a key aspect of our cultural narrative. Uh, we, we think of people like Henry David Thoreau who said, disobedience is the true foundation of liberty. The obedient must be slaves. And from the very beginning, our nation was founded on this sense that there was a power who was trying to get us to obey them, and we disobeyed. We, we separated ourselves from that power. We would not be subservient to these other people. We wouldn't be obedient. And we kind of have this, this tension there, because at the same time, in our everyday lives, most of us have to obey, right? Like, most of us have bosses who give us orders, essentially, tell us what we're supposed to do, and we obey. There are laws that are there for our benefit that we obey, hopefully. Um, there are lots of places in our lives where we're expected to obey, but yet we struggle with that idea. And I think... Really, the issue there is, is not so much obedience as it is trust. We're fine following the orders of someone if we trust them. The question is, can we trust them? I mean, just think about the last time you, you visited a doctor. Uh, I took my daughter, uh, Lael, who's my nine-year-old, to the doctor this week. She recently broke her hand about three weeks ago. We went, I tell people, we, we went through 14 years of no broken bones. We have four kids. And this year, my daughter Layla has broken two. So it's been a lot of fun. Um, she's trying to identify which bone she thinks she's going to break next year. But uh, we went to the doctor this week uh, because it was about the time. They weren't quite sure whether or not she would be ready to get out of the cast this week, but they kind of thought she would be. But we had to go kind of get it checked out. And everything kind of pointed to this is going to be the time she gets the cast off. You know, it, she's feeling better. It seems like, you know, everything's going well. Obviously, she should be able to get her cast off this week. We went in. The doctor x-rayed it, came in and said, um, actually, it's, you know, it's healing well, but it's just a little slower than we originally anticipated, so we need to give it another 10 to 14 days. Now, I could have, in that moment, said, you know what? She's my daughter. I think we just want to get the cast off. Thanks for your opinion. 
but no thanks. But given that my degrees are in things like education and theology, and his degrees are in things like when you want to know a bone is healed or not, I kind of thought, you know, I think we'll go with yours. Let's do that. And so even though we didn't want to, even though it's not what we'd really hoped for, we left the cast on, right? Because I trusted that the doctor knew what he was talking about. And so I was willing to obey him. And there's lots of different places where the key issue when it comes to are we going to obey or not is really not about do we think we ought to obey someone or not, but it's about do we trust the one who's giving us the instructions? Do we trust the person who's telling us what we ought to do? And what John is saying as he kind of wraps up his letter here is that for those of us who believe Christ, and, and maybe a better way to frame that is trust, right? Because when we talk about believe, it's easy for us to think about uh, belief in terms of do we kind of have mental assent to ideas? You know, like, do I agree with the statement that Jesus is God in the flesh, that, that Jesus died and rose again? Like, do I agree with that? We tend to think of belief as like yes or no. Do I agree or do I not? And now, Ideas are important, right? Like what we say is true really matters because it impacts what we do. But sometimes we, we can tend to kind of separate what we think is true and how our lives are shaped. And when John's talking about belief, what he really means is more this idea of trust. Do we trust Christ? And if we trust him then we'll find ourselves inclined to obey him. To believe that when he tells us this is the way of life, this is the way you ought to live, that he actually knows what, it's, what it is that he's speaking about. That he's actually right. So that when we hear Jesus talk about the idea that self-giving love, while it's more difficult is the way of life over and against self-centered living. Or that we hear him talking about the need to give generously of our, of our resources and our time, that that's the way that we experience good life, by being generous people. That that's actually true. That forgiveness, as hard as it is, is in fact better than revenge. That greatness is found by serving others. That when we hear Jesus say these things, believing is not simply just kind of saying, ah, he's probably right about that, but trusting in such a way that our our lives line up with how Jesus says we ought to live. Believing that the life Jesus calls us to is the, the real life that we were made to live. It is the ultimate reality that we were created to experience, to thrive in, in this world. C.S. Lewis, um, in his book, Mere Christianity, wrote this. He said, to have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. 
Thus, if you have really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you were trying to obey him. But trying in a new way, a less worried way, not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he has begun to save you already, not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside you. And I think as, as Lewis talks about this idea of what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, it reflects really clearly what John's talking about, right? Because John is kind of tying this sense, not that we obey to become children of God, but that because of this work God is doing in us, we are moved to obedience. Earlier in John, he talks about this idea that we love not to earn God's love, but because God loved us first, that God initiates in love, that because God is the one who initiates in our lives, loving us, reaching out to us, showing us grace and mercy and forgiveness, then we are moved to love. We are moved to obey as we find ourselves being transformed by him. Now, this isn't easy, and this doesn't simply mean that we just kind of, like robots, do everything we ought to do all the time. Trusting can be really difficult. So um, my wife is a quilter. Uh, Her name's Tracy, and she, uh, for the last, well, when she was 14 years old, she she joined a quilt guild with her mother and started uh, learning to to quilt, um, to hand quilt. Uh, Later in life, about eight years ago or so, she got a long-arm quilting machine, which is this gigantic kind of sewing machine. It's like a 12-by-4-foot sewing machine that is now in our house. And she started a business from her house where people bring her quilts, and she quilts them and all that. Now, as part of this kind of new business, she joined a quilt guild. Now, when you hear the word quilt guild, undoubtedly what you think of is lots of elderly women sitting around with quilts talking about quilting. And you probably have the same general reaction as most people do to that. And that is probably a yawn followed by something, you know, synonymous to a yawn. Um, And my kids and I kind of, you know, we're like, great, we're glad you're involved, glad that's cool for you, it's a great opportunity, Um, let us know how that goes. But early on, she was very, uh, she she really was uh, insistent that my children go with her that our four kids kind of join her and go to this quilt guild. And, you know, I was a little like, are you really? I mean, you're welcome to take them. It's cool. I just don't know that's going to go well. She's like, no, 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 it's going to be great. Kids can go. And, of course, the kids were resistant because it didn't have the the word video game or television in the title. They just assumed this was going to be completely lame. And I was really trying to do the good dad thing of, like, no, you should listen to your mom. Meanwhile, thinking, this is such a bad idea. Um, But they eventually, eventually she kind of talked them into going. And they went and they came back and I'm like, hey, how was it? How was the quilt guild? They're like, it was awesome. And I'm thinking, wow, we need to rename this thing because the name really undersells it. Um, and they're like, no, no, it was great. They, they had all sorts of snacks. There was like cake and there was candy and there was soda. And so we're like hanging out in the back, reading books, drinking Mountain Dew, eating. I was like, oh, I got it. Okay. But Tracy knew this all along. This was her kind of like scheming way of knowing. She's like, she wanted them to get involved, to get connected, and she knew there was candy. And so she figured the two, it would just be a no-brainer. And interestingly, now 
most of our kids want to go every time she goes. They love it. They think it's a great time. But they didn't at first, right? They kind of had... They kind of had to take a risk, to take a leap, to trust their mom, and to see if what she was talking about was really true. And this is what obedience looks like when it comes to obedience with Christ, too. Yes, it's, it's response to a work that God is doing in us, but it doesn't mean that everything is easy. In fact, sometimes it's really difficult, and sometimes we're not even convinced it is right. There's a tension within us, like, really? Really? Is this going to work out? There's a great story. One of my favorite stories in all of Scripture is found in one of the, the Gospels, Matthew's Gospel, the, the first biography of Jesus we find in the New Testament. <clears throat> and this story, if, if you've been around here or just around uh, church stuff or you, you're familiar with the Bible, this story may ring a bell with you. Um, but it's a story that happens right after this really miraculous event where Jesus feeds thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish. And he, he with his disciples, his students, his followers, they kind of, they distribute all this food. It's this really huge event. It's amazing. And then he sends the disciples in a boat across a lake while he dismisses everyone. And then he kind of goes up and prays. Matthew tells us that all night long they're in this boat and the wind is against them. And they're hitting waves, and they're hitting wind, and they just can't get anywhere all night long. And then we come to this in verse 25. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. All right, so it's a, it's a pretty amazing story, and there's a lot story, and there's a lot of layers to it. Um, I love this story, and there's so much here that speaks to us about what it looks like to trust Jesus. So, in the Jewish first-century Jewish mindset, the most terrifying thing you could you could like face is water. Water was this kind of symbol of chaos. Um, in the beginning, in the, in the origin stories in Genesis, the first book of, of the Bible, of, of the Old Testament, when it talks about God creating all things, God subdues the water. Right? He, he hovers over the chaotic, watery abyss. And he has to kind of subdue that to bring life and creation. And there's this, this understanding in the Jewish mind that Water is this chaotic, mysterious, scary element. And so you have these people on a boat in a lake all night long. They can't get anywhere. They're exhausted. Jesus comes to them, and Peter, one of the most outspoken uh, followers of Christ, does something that seems just to make no sense at all. Right? Jesus is walking on the water, and it's right before dawn. 
uh, Matthew tells us. Now, you know the saying, it's always darkest before the dawn. Whether that's scientifically accurate or not, it's dark. Okay? So it's dark right before, right before the sun rises. And so Jesus is walking out on the water, and Peter says, hey, if it's you, tell me to come to you. This is not how I probably would have responded. I would have said, hey, Jesus, if it's you, get in the boat and help us get across the lake. This is kind of annoying, right? But for whatever, you know, that's not what he does. And so um, Peter says, if it's you, tell me to come to you. And so, of course, Jesus says, come. Peter gets out, and, and this is why I love the story so much, right? Peter gets out, and he walks on water for a few moments, which is pretty impressive. But then... There's wind, there's waves, he gets distracted, and he sinks. And Jesus swoops in, rescues them, they get back in the boat, and they go. And what I love about this is that it would be easy to look at this and say, Peter failed. If the end game was for Peter to figure out how to walk on water, it was not that great, right? Like, Peter cannot... He's not going to go off and teach someone else how to do this trick. It just didn't work well for him. But if the end game was for Peter to learn what it means to trust Christ, well, it was actually pretty successful. Because what he found in the end was that even though he was really bad at walking on water, Jesus was really trustworthy. Because he didn't do a very good job of walking on water, but he made it anyway because Jesus rescued him. And I think this is our experience with obedience. Not that for those of us who have opened ourselves up to Christ and are being transformed, not that obedience is just easy and suddenly everything Jesus says is just second nature. Not at all but that the point isn't necessarily that you are becoming this amazing person who does everything right all the time, but that you're becoming someone who increasingly finds that Christ is trustworthy. And so you are increasingly learning to live what he says because you trust him, even when you don't understand it, even when it doesn't make sense even when everything around you challenges that that really is the way of life. And this type of living, this way of love, this is the way that John says we overcome the world. Now, what does that mean? He repeats it a lot in like three lines. He talks about overcoming the world, overcoming the world, overcoming the world. What is that all about? There are those over the years and, and even today who, who assume that when John talks about the world, what he's talking about is material stuff, that he's talking about you know, food and drink and entertainment and the, and the things, the, the kind of natural world, that those things are somehow antithetical to Jesus, that Jesus is really about spiritual things, not this worldly stuff. But that's actually kind of counter of what John has been saying all along in this letter. If you've been with us, or if you're familiar with the work at all, if you're not, again, go back and read it. But much of what John is writing is to counter these people who are saying, actually, the Christ, 
was not this kind of physical person. It was this, this spiritual thing that God was doing. And, and yes, it happened through this person, but only for a limited period of time. And John's kind of saying, whoa, whoa, whoa wait, no, 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 no. We understand that Jesus is fully God, but fully human, that he brings together the spiritual and the physical. It's not kind of both, it's one in this mysterious way. So John is kind of, he, he's against this dichotomy between what's spiritual and what's material, what's kind of normal everyday life. N.T. Wright, who's a, uh, a New Testament scholar, writes this about what John is getting at when he talks about overcoming the world, what the world is in this context. Wright says, the world here means the world as it places itself over against God. The command refers not to the physical stuff of this world, but to the world as it is in rebellion against God. The world as the combination of things that draw us away from God. So when John's talking about overcoming the world, he's not talking about the physical world. He's talking about the ideas, the messages that would point us in a different direction than the way of Jesus. You know, the, these messages that tell us that, that revenge, that hatred is justified when you are wrong. That when you hold on to anger and bitterness, that you actually deserve that. You don't owe anyone forgiveness. They don't deserve to be forgiven. You don't need to forgive them. Or the message that says what really matters is that you are happy. And so... When you have resources, be it financial resources, time resources, whatever that might be, that should primarily go towards your personal happiness. Focus those things on what makes you happy. Otherwise, I mean, you only go around once, right? Why waste it? Or this idea that self-protection is the most important thing. That don't, don't love, don't don't be vulnerable with people who might reject you, who might not respond in kind. I mean, if they're not people who are just going to, you know, if they're not going to be cool to you, then just ignore them. Treat, like, 